Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. Uh, This is my first time back in Montreal since 1987. And uh, my wife and I, on our first anniversary of our wedding, drove across uh, from Alberta all the way to Prince Edward Island, and we stopped in Montreal for a little while. But I mean, I really have enjoyed this trip, and uh, the barista who has been, the young barista who's been serving me every morning for coffee, we've been kind of striking up a fun little conversation, and she sort of discovered I was here for church reasons. And so this morning, she said, you have an attractive, and I was like, oh, I'm ready for this face, right? Or is it the perfect body you're referring to? And I was ready to text my wife, like, I've still got it, babe, you know? And then she said this, she said, you have an attractive personality for a Christian. And I thought, wow. (laughs) I thought, wow, like that's kind of concerning, amen? Uh, You know, so it just made me think more and more that every time I meet someone, uh, I need to think about, like, am I, do I have the winsome personality of Jesus Uh, to every person I meet? And I don't know about you, but that's been a challenge for me. So I got a chance to kind of chat with her, and I gave her a family picture in my card. And uh, I don't know, she, I hope she doesn't think I'm stalking her. Uh, but anyway, she was just a wonderful person. So I've really enjoyed uh, being here in Montreal and praying over churches. And I bring you greetings this morning from three places. One of them is our church in Abbotsford. Karen and I attend something called the Life Center. And it's part of our church, uh, families of churches across Canada. We're about 220 or so churches across Canada in our, in our MB family. And this church, I'm attracted to it because every Sunday morning we put out 18 different flags of countries that people come to our church. And we also have more flags inside, but in the front there's no flag, there's just the cross of Jesus. Amen? And so we come together like Revelation 7-9 from every tribe and every tongue and every nation to do the exact same thing, which is bow down on the foot of the, uh, the cross. And so I'm excited about that. In a few hours they'll be having their service. They... They generally, I mean, regularly pray in two languages at the beginning. We have part of our worship songs in different languages. And people come, and it's so much fun because I stand at the door. I'm a greeter. It's my only spiritual gift. And I get to be at the front, and I, people come and say, how come you have the Jamaica flag? I'm from Jamaica. And I say, hey, if you want to come in, I'll introduce you to one of our Jamaican friends who's here. And then they say, hey, you don't have a flag from my country. I say, well, you know, these flags represent people who come here, if you come and and be part of our church family, uh, we'd be happy to put a flag up for you. And so people go, oh, yeah, that's great. And little kids come, is this the United Nations? I say, well, sort of, (laughs) you know, sort of. So anyway, I bring you greetings from the Life Center Church. The second place is Columbia Bible College, where I've been teaching for 31 years. And we have about, yeah, I know, can you believe it? I don't look that old, right? Yeah, I like you, Sharon. Okay. And so... uh, I've been teaching there for 31 years, Bible and theology, and we have about 400 students between 18 and 25-ish, and they come, and most of them are full-time, and some of them are becoming paramedics, and some of them are EA, like educational assistant, I don't know if what you call it here in Quebec, and then we have a whole bunch of students who are just here to learn more what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, and I have been so blessed, I had to, uh, contrary to what David said, I actually had to resign 
recently because the Canadian Conference of ME Churches invited me to this new role. And I'll tell you, it was such a sad thing for me to have to say goodbye. And they, they've let me keep my office. They seem nice to me still. And my email is still the same. And, but it's really been hard. So I actually last, well, a week and a half ago, my daughter teaches there part-time as well, New Testament survey. And I've been teaching Old Testament my whole career. And she was coming into town for this intensive one-week class, and then she texted me, Dad, I've got laryngitis. Can't teach. Will you teach? I'm like, I can't teach New Testament. There's some good verses in there. But it's not like the Old Testament, amen? Okay, don't say amen. Okay. So I went in, and I taught, I taught for like four classes for her until her voice got better. And it was so much fun. I'm like, Elton, I want to resign from you and get back into the classroom. No, don't. Is he, did I not use my inside voice when I said that? Okay, anyway, so I'm bringing greetings from Columbia Bible College. I also bring greetings from the Canadian Conference of MB Churches. Like I said, a group of about 220 churches across Canada. And Elton is here. He is the national director. So I'm going to get him to stand and, uh, just for a second. Now, and yeah, see? Elton, that's what it sounded like at the end of every class I taught. Okay, maybe not. All right, so... Uh, we're here to pray and bless and serve you. We are not leaders who come and expect you to serve us. We are leaders who want to serve you. So we're thankful for the introduction to be here. We have had so much fun this week. We're also in Moncton, and we're praying over churches and blessing people. That's our main objective on this trip. Now, so those are the, those are the introductions uh, so far. Now, when it comes to uh, our topic this morning... We just, we're in January. I know a lot of people, they make uh, New Year's resolutions. I don't know if anybody here made a New Year's resolution. I'm going to exercise more. I'm going to do this. I, I love being part of a gym because every January the gym is full. You ever have that? Like there's all of a sudden, I can't hardly get my machine that I usually have. Don't you know my name's on that machine? And then people are on there like, who are you? Right? And then I try to say, how would Jesus respond? Okay, yeah, go ahead. It's good. You know, but I'm just saying, and then by the time this time comes, no one's there. Amen? Like, they're, they're gone. They're at A&W having double-double something or other Tim Hortons. Like, okay? So it's kind of fun to watch. I don't know about you, but if you've had resolutions, and other people, they pick a word for the year. Have you ever had those kind of people? Okay, they pick a word, like gratitude. Okay, that's good. Amen? That's good. They also have other words for this year. And I'm going to suggest this morning that the most important thing for 2023 is not a word... It's not a resolution, it's a posture. Okay, so I hope I can just say that the most important thing for 2023 is not a word, and it's not a resolution, it's a posture. Now, as David mentioned, when I was growing up, I was always taller than other kids. And so when I would be in school, I would slouch in the desk, because the desk never fit me. They fit kind of normal-sized kids, I guess. And then I'd stand up, and then, you know, the teacher would be showing something, and we'd all be standing around, and then... Grade six boys who have the gift of encouragement. Amen? They would say things to me like, get down, and you're a better door than a window, and all these other things that really help your struggling self-image, right, at that age. So I decided I'd slouch, and I would slouch, and I'd slouch, and my mom would tell me. My mom, bless her heart, she passed away in 2008, and, you know, she would, she would say things like, you know, stand up straight, and this is one of her many sayings. She would say, don't do nothing stupid. It's bad grammar, Mom, but I get the point. And then she'd say things like, remember who you are. Nothing good happens after midnight. Um, okay. <laughs> OK? 
Okay, just saying, parents, do you agree with that? Like, just saying. Okay, see, some parents are here. Okay, so any of you have mothers that gave you interesting advice? Like, why don't you tell the person beside you a couple of pieces of, like, really beautiful mother advice. I'll give you about 30 seconds. I don't know if I should let you go because David has a hard time getting you back. I don't know if I'll ever do. Okay, I used to teach middle school, so I have a little bit of experience. So go ahead, 30 seconds, interesting mom advice. All right, based on the laughter, I'm kind of concerned about your moms. All right? Now, my physiotherapist starts sounding a lot like my mom. He always says, stand up straight, you need to do these things. And now people are very concerned. Like, you know, we used to have these, these ball chairs. Anybody have a ball chair to sit on at your desk? Other people had these chairs where you were, like, it felt a little bit like a medieval torture thing. You're, you're, and eventually your knees are like, how can I get up? Like, I don't care, I'm just staying here. And now people have stand-up desks because of posture. So I didn't really change posture until I was in grade 8, and I decided, well, I decided, they, they decided to put me on the basketball team. I was, I was recruited, and I was in grade 8. And I was put on the basketball team, and I realized posture matters. There is a posture for playing basketball, defense and offense. There's a posture for soccer and tennis and all these sports and I suddenly realized if you don't get your posture right, nothing else matters. Can you say that with me? If you don't get your posture right, nothing else matters. So I'm going to suggest this morning that the most important thing for Christian disciples and for a church is that we get our posture right. Now our text this morning, I don't know if we have it on the screen. Uh, if we don't, I'm going to just, oh yeah, there we go. That's beautiful. That is much better than the one I sent in. Okay? So, you know, you got you to gotta thank those people in the back, right? Yeah. I do that so he doesn't turn my mic off, right? Like, that's smart. Okay, so I'm going to get you uh, to stand. Can, is there a text next? Or is there, am I hoping for, the, oh, there it is. So can you stand with me? As we read the, the scripture, actually, I'm going to get you to get into groups of three or four. Make sure that no one's left, left out, okay? Uh, what is that movie or that, or that saying? Ohana means family, and family means no one's left behind. We are a family in this church. That means no one's left behind. So make sure that everyone's included. And all you do is stand in a little group of three or four, whatever you want to do, and then read a verse each. And at the, before you do that, and when you finish... I'd like you just to go around the circle say, what's kind of new or interesting or a question you have about this text? Because if you read scripture and you don't find something new, you're not reading it right. Amen? Like the scripture is like an amazing multicolored kaleidoscope of things that you should always be reading it again for the first time. All right, so I'm going to give you a few minutes with your little group. Introduce yourself first, like, okay, and use your real name, like, okay? I'm kind of worried about that. All right, thank the people, and stay standing just for a second. We're going to read this together, but thank the people that were in your group, and tell them they look great this morning. Don't just tell them they have attractive personality, because that hurts. I should know. Okay, so let's read it together. Then the 11 
disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they, but some, then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. You guys were fantastic. Now, we're going to spend a few minutes exploring our text before we get to the question of what exactly is this posture and what does it look like? Now, you should have some questions. First of all, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, and you should right away ask the question. I thought there were 12. And if you had that question, you should know that at this point in time, Judas, who went with Jesus for three years in the discipleship program, at the very end, he ate the bread. He drank the cup at the Passover meal with Jesus, and he walked away, and he got the temple officials to come back, and he kissed Jesus, and they arrested Jesus. And because of that event, he took his 30 shekels of silver, and he eventually ended his own life once he realized that he had been an accomplice to the crucifixion of Jesus. So that's, that's the reason why we only have 11 disciples of Jesus. They go from Jerusalem, where there's a temple, and they go to a Galilee, which is about a three-day journey away, assuming, of course, that they walk through Samaria. The other way is actually a longer way across the Jordan River. But so they would do a three-day journey to some mountain that Jesus apparently prearranged with them. Now, it's surprising uh, that the na- mountain isn't named, because mountains in the Bible are real physical places. They are real physical places. Uh, for example, Mount Sinai is a real mountain. You can go visit it. Mount Zion is where the temple in Jerusalem is. You could visit these mountains, but the most important thing about a mountain is it's not just a physical place. It is a spiritual place. Now, the mountains in Israel are a little bit like mountains in Saskatchewan. I don't know uh, if you've ever been there, but they're not, I mean, I don't know, Mont Tremblant is pretty big. Is that, anybody been there? Okay, so it's bigger than probably these mountains. But the mountains are places where actually God comes down. And so mountains are basically temples. And even when you think about this, Mount Sinai, God comes down to give the Ten Commandments and to instruct Moses. Uh, Mount of Transfiguration, these figures come down. Um, When it comes to the temple, Jesus comes down. Even the Garden of Eden, which I used to think like this, If you read carefully, you'll notice that four rivers flow out of that garden, which means the Garden of Eden has to be on a some sort of mountain. And when Led Zeppelin, you know, sang his, or I think named his whole album, didn't he? The Stairway Stairway to Heaven. It actually is completely contrary to Scripture because Scripture is not a stairway to heaven. It's a stairway from heaven because people went up onto mountains not to escape the world, but to have the king of the universe come down to them and intervene in their world. And you notice that even in Revelation, the new Jerusalem is on a holy mountain. Uh, And Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. So there's these sacred mountains that are temples for various gods. And when Matthew 17, when Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a 
Mustard seed, you can move mountains. No one wanted to move physical mountains around. That is a significantly spiritual expression to say that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains that are spiritual opposition to our God. And they can be thrown into the sea. And I believe last month, sometime Pastor David did talk about the sea and Revelation not being there. And all of our surfers and folks were very sad. Right? But the sea is a, also a spiritual place where the powers of darkness are reigning. I mean, reigning. I shouldn't use that word maybe, but that's where they are from. And that's when Jesus walks on water on Sea of Galilee. He is basically walking on the spiritual forces of darkness. When he calms the storm, he is calming the spiritual forces of darkness. So mountains and, wa- and sea and desert are the three places in particular that have spiritual forces of darkness. And you'll notice that Jesus conquers all of them and claims rightful rulership over all of them. So anyway, when we think about this mountain, the one thing that's interesting is that Jesus says, don't meet me on the Temple Mount. Isn't that interesting? You would think that Jesus would say, hey, after I'm resurrected, you meet me on the Temple Mount. Like, look at this beautiful building. Look at this building that has like gold and all these things and has the Holy of Holies. It's incredible. Jesus says, I'm not going there. He doesn't say, I'm going to go to some other mountain. It's an unnamed mountain. And I think the purpose of that text is to say, no longer should you travel to any temple. Jesus is where heaven and earth meet. And so Jesus is the temple. And now when people gather together who are filled with this Holy Spirit, this is the temple. Not this building, but you and, and I as worshipers of this Jesus, inviting his Holy Spirit in. So what matters then is not the mountain, but Jesus. When now, now we get to the question of posture. We have the 11 of these failed disciples. Like You should right away recognize these are failed disciples. They have gone through a three-year training program with Jesus, and their transcript says what? Failed. Okay, I don't know how you're encouraged by that, but they, don't, they did not graduate properly. Fail. And that's kind of encouraging to me because in my discipleship life, I have a what? Fail. Anybody else? Is, you guys are, David, I don't know how you produce a congregation like this. Okay? They are all stellar in discipleship. Can anyone, for a second, just to make me feel better, are, have you failed in discipleship? Okay? The rest of you are liars, and therefore... <laughs> Okay, is that fair to say? Can I say that here? You're not recording this, are you, internet? Oh, can you edit some stuff for me? Okay. So you'll notice the one thing that's interesting is these bunch of failures, 11 of them, come to this mountain, and they walk up the mountain, and it says, what about them? Okay, when they saw Jesus, they what? Worshipped him. Now, you, I, I was always asking, like, what does that mean, actually? Do they pull out a guitar? Do they have a portable, like, do they start doing a liturgical reading of Psalm 23? What does it look like for them to worship Jesus? And if you look carefully at the Greek, you'll know right away. It basically means you hit the ground with your forehead on the ground. That is what it means to worship. Initially, you hit the ground with your forehead in the dirt. And so it's not only a physical posture, it's a spiritual posture that reflects surrender sacrifice, submission, faith, obedience, and trust. You're saying to Jesus, my time is yours. My life is yours. 
Whatever skills I have are yours. My possessions are yours. In this posture, the person you were bowing in front of could easily kill you, could easily take everything, could kick you in the head. They could do it. Do not bow down and worship anyone you do not trust. And you're saying in this posture, I trust you, Jesus. I have faith in you, Jesus. I will obey you, Jesus. I surrender my life to you, Jesus. Now, the posture of worship is what three years of discipleship training is supposed to produce. The posture of worship is what the discipleship program is supposed to produce. Before anything else, disciples worship. Before your church has a mission, your first mission is, say it with me, worship. Now, you should, like I said, never worship anyone you don't trust. Mordecai in the book of Esther was supposed to bow down in front of Haman, and he refuses so. And he was willing to risk his very life to say, I will not bow down in front of a person. Now, our text records that the disciples worship, but some, what? Doubted. I find that very interesting and to think about. Um, you know, are these... 11 disciples bowing down, and then the narrator realizes, oh, deep down in some of them, they're doubting. That seems actually very unlikely to be the case. It's most likely that if you were there that day, you would see a bunch of disciples, I don't know, six, seven, bowing down, and the rest of them what? Standing. So doubt is not uh, so much in your head. It is a lack of worship in this moment. And so you might not think, well, how could they have doubted? Even doubting Thomas, when he met Jesus, stopped doubting. So I think you should imagine this picture of people worshiping, bowing down, and some people standing. Now, why were they standing? Was it doubt? N.T. Wright, one of the most significant uh, evangelical uh, scholars in biblical studies today, says we should probably translate this not as doubt, but as hesitation. These, some of the disciples were worshiping, and some of them were hesitating. Why in the world would they hesitate in front of the risen Jesus? Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament Jewish believers, they would say twice a day, their most significant verse, which is like John 3.16 for them, is from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 and following, and it's called the Shema. And in Hebrew, it goes like the Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And in English, of course, it's here, which is Shema. Here, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is how many? One. And if you can imagine these Jewish disciples of Jesus standing in front of the risen Jesus and saying, uh, some of you are bowing down. Um, if you're bowing down, you're basically saying that somehow this Jesus is also God. And that has taken us hundreds and hundreds of years to figure out, and I'd suggest we still haven't figured it out. But this is the reality of the triune God when we worship Jesus, we worship the Father, we worship the Holy Spirit. Amen? This is part of what, what's taken us hundreds of years to imagine. So when we think about those two postures, we have some standing, and we have uh, hopefully many of them worshiping, but we also have a third posture. There is one disciple who is not here, and I just mentioned his name. It's Judas. Judas is not here and so when you think about, you know, Judas, we ask the question, why in the world did Judas bring those temple officials after taking the cup and taking the bread? How could he have done this? Was he simply greedy for money? Uh, well, as soon as Jesus died, what did he do with the money? 
he threw it back in, into the temple. And so it seems very likely that it was simply a money issue. Most scholars suggest that Judas actually had really good motivations. He wanted Jesus to be the Messiah that Jesus was apparently being identified with. He wanted Jesus to bring in his kingdom, and he thought maybe when in this moment he would have to call down all the angels of heaven and the kingdom would come powerfully in the world and make everything right. This is actually the hope of the Christian faith, is that God would come down and make everything right. Amen? That is what we hope for. That is what we pray for. I know some Christians who say, actually, my hope is to escape, to go on some cloudy cream cheese. I say, you haven't been reading the Bible. Because the Bible's hope is not that you escape and go eat cream cheese somewhere as beautiful as cream cheese can be. I had a bagel and cream cheese this morning. It was the best I've had. But that is not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is resurrection and that God would come down and bring the new creation, the new heavens and new earth. So when I think about Judas and his failed discipleship program, I'm sometimes encouraged. I've spent 31 years of my life praying for, teaching, passionately inviting young adults to become seriously committed disciples of Jesus, worshiping and pursuing his kingdom. Seek first God's kingdom as righteousness, amen? That's what I've been doing. And then I watch later and I see like people who were on the worship team are no longer walking with Jesus four years later. I see people who are this and I'm like, "How how can this happen? Maybe my life is wasted. Then I read this. And I see even in the very best discipleship program ever in the history of the world, there are people who walk away. So Judas did all of this and I suggest that he probably wanted a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. And I find that very tempting myself. When I look at Jesus on the cross and then risen, I look at our world, I say, how can this king actually change and transform this broken world? And I can easily start thinking, I, wanted, I, I, wanted, I want the kingdom, justice and wholeness and all these things without the king. Mark Sayer uh, says that, you know, a lot of people in our world want the kingdom without the king. And I thought I'd said that first, but he didn't quote me, so I have to quote him now. Um, All right. Now, when we think about these three postures, what are they again? Worshiping, standing, or walking away. Our text is trying to explain to us in the coming verses why worship is the proper posture for disciples of Jesus. And so when we look into our text, what does it say right after this? Jesus did what? He came. Isn't that beautiful? Don't, Don't rush over that. Jesus came. Now, I just told you a few minutes ago, what grades were these folks getting? Okay? Like, think about it. Judas goes off and brings the temple officials, and they end up crucifying Jesus. What grade would he get? A fail. Then you think about 10 of the other disciples. As soon as Jesus is there getting arrested, they all run away. What did you give them? Fail. Then you have Peter. He is like on scholarship in the discipleship school. He is amazing. They're going to rename him Rock. Like, that's a good name for movie people, maybe. Anyway, so they call him this name. He's incredible. And yet, what does he do? He follows along the entourage and then in casual conversation denies knowing Jesus three times. I would call that epic fail. Amen? Now, when you think about these 11 disciples, and this is the first time in this gospel we, that Jesus meets them, 
I can imagine Jesus looking at them and yelling at them and rebuking them and telling them what big failures they are. But instead, what does Jesus do? He comes. He comes. I love that. No matter what you have done in your life, no matter what epic fail you have, Jesus comes. Even this week, no matter what's happened this week, you cannot outfail Jesus coming. And so because of that, the first reason I'd suggest to you that we should bow in front of Jesus is because Jesus is love embodied. Jesus is love embodied. Say that to the person beside you three times. Okay? I don't know if you can do that. It's pretty tricky. Okay, say with me. Jesus is love embodied. Amen? Okay, I go to a kind of a Pentecostal church, uh, so we kind of say amen a lot. I don't know about you, but you might have to practice that. Okay, so Jesus is what? Love embodied. Now, what is the next line? Jesus came to them and said, all, how much authority? All. Authority where? In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, if you don't underline that in your, in your Bible, I hope you have a Bible somewhere, a real Bible, not this computer thing. Okay, I'd encourage you to underline that. Put that on your fridge because if that's one of the most significant biblical truths in the New Testament is that Jesus has how much authority? All. Where? Heaven and on earth. That means that Jesus is rightly king. He is king in heaven. He is king on earth. The earth is not rightfully ruled by any other power than Jesus, every other power of darkness is in a trespasser here. And even though Jesus is king and not everyone worships him, he is still king. He is king in Montreal, amen? He is king in all of Quebec, amen? He is king in all of Canada. Okay, so I don't know amens there, what happened? Okay, Western Canada needs Jesus too, right? Amen. He is king in the whole world. So Jesus is not only love embodied, he's king enthroned. And Jesus is love embodied and king enthroned. Can you try that with your, the person beside you? I know it's hard. This is, you can never have to invite a teacher back. It's okay. I won't feel hurt. Okay, say it to someone near you. Jesus is love embodied and king enthroned. I don't know if I heard that. Okay, say it with me. Jesus is love embodied and king enthroned. Now, what that means in part is that Jesus is not firstly your friend. I hear people say this. Jesus is my friend. I say, you know what? That's partially true. But Jesus is firstly your king. Jesus is firstly the ruler who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Because if Jesus is your friend, you will not likely live a life of worship. I don't worship my friends Okay? Sorry, Elton. I didn't mean to mention this publicly, but I don't even obey my friends. <laughs> okay? <laughs> Trouble. Um, so Jesus is not firstly your friend. He is a loving king, but he's not firstly your friend. If he were to walk in today, the right thing for us to do is to see the resurrected Jesus with the nail marks and on, his, and on the side, the, the slash mark on his side, we would not just run up to him and give him a hug. We would not do high five and say, hey, my truck payment is late. 
I'm hoping that all of us would bow down in worship and say, we welcome you here, our King. And how can we serve you with our lives today? Because you're here. And so this is the kind of posture that is the posture of discipleship. It says in Philippians 2, 9 to 11, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he Every, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is King or Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is great news this morning in our text. There is great news that the risen Jesus is King, and we are people who the first posture is the posture of discipleship. So we have then three postures, and we've also been given a reason why worship is the posture for us. So what does that mean for you at Westside Gathering? I'm going to get you into back in groups in a minute. Just say, what is one thing that you've been challenged by or you think about or you have questions about our text this morning? But I would encourage you to wake up every morning and practice this posture. Now, I don't know if you physically need to get on the ground. If I go down there, I'll never get up. It's too far, right? 60 is the new 30, but not really, Okay. I'm just saying, I, I want to have the posture of worship. So every morning when I get up, I want to say, God, you are ruling and reigning supreme today. You are the one who's bringing your kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray that you would fill me today with your Holy Spirit, your love, your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness, your gentleness, your self-control. And I pray, Lord, that today I would seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. I declare these truths in this place to the glory of Jesus and all the people said. And that's what I encourage you to do. Even as you're in the car, even as you're walking to work, say those things. Declare truth. And, and make your posture for the day the posture of worship. Why don't you stand with me? The worship team is going to come up at this time, and I would like you to think two things before I give you a blessing. I would like you to look at that text and say, what is there, what's one thing that's going to go with me into this week? What is one thing that I can live into this week uh, because of this text? Uh, scripture is a powerful double-edged sword. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the person of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when you look at this text, I encourage you to think, what could be one thing? And I mean, at the end of my blessing, the worship team will play quietly, and then if you could share one thing, one thing that the Holy Spirit has been calling you to. So once you reach out your hands, this is a blessing thing. Okay, you're, okay you don't have to do it too high. Like, we're just lift the TV Okay, there's different types here. Okay, not too wide. Someone will think something of you. So I'm just going to say a blessing. If you know the blessing, point to people around you. Because this is the blessing from Numbers 6, 24 to 26. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you shalom in the name of Jesus, for his kingdom glory. And all the people said, Amen. You've been wonderful. Blessings and shalom to you.
Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.